our next presentation, um, Michelle O oh is going to be talking about how we make our design research activities more inclusive. Please join me in welcoming Michelle to the stage. I wish I was taller for this. Very jealous about Laura and Brendan's height. From afar, I was like, that's the perfect height. I can see your upper torso. Anyway, hello everybody, good afternoon. And hello to everyone online. I know it's very difficult to be seated in front of a screen for a full day conference. So if you're still here, good on you. And I hope you continue to the end. Um, I don't know about you, but I have been noticing a lot of inclusion threads throughout what we've been hearing from the morning up until very now, and I'm loving it. Maybe I just have like a little bit of a bias for topics that are related to inclusion, and so my inclusion antenna were going, yes, 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 everything fits in. And I'm just so glad that as part of the previous talks, we touched on participatory design, designing with not for, as well as evaluation, because I'm not going to be going into that. I'll be touching it on like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to inclusive design and inclusive design research. So fab that that's happened. Um, I also learned a new word today, transculturation, or was it transculturalism? Either one of those. I knew about the word cross-cultural communication because I see that as one of my superpowers as a designer because I'm an Australian-born Chinese, red alert. Um, my home culture is very much still Chinese. I still live with my family, but the society that my family operates in, um, in Sydney, it's very Australian, although it is very multicultural. And so first off, I'd like to pay my respect to the longest living culture that we have here, which is that of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, the traditional custodians of country. I was born and bred on Gadigal land. Um, I think I'm gonna go back on script now. Yes, so I'm gonna come back over here because if I don't, then I'll be going off on a lot of random tangents and this talk will never be done. So today I'll be talking about how we can make design research more inclusive both individually and as a collective community. I personally have been immersed in inclusive design for the past four years and during that time I've had the privilege of working at an organisation called the Centre for Inclusive Design. Uh, the Centre is a not-for-profit design agency um, some of our clients are here and we help organizations create products services in both the digital and physical spaces that better serve everyone not just some and you'll find that i keep referring to the center as we i can't undo it yet because i've only started at my new organization in the public sector for the last two months um, so i just wanted to give the center a shout out because the content from this talk is largely drawn from my experience working with the Centre for Inclusive Design, where in the last two years, I got to do research with over 200 people across different projects for both public and private sector clients. The research participants that I worked with um, typically come from communities that have historically been and continue to be underrepresented because of systemic exclusion in research design and decision making. 
And those cohorts include, but aren't limited to, people with disability, our neurodiverse community, the LGBTQ plus community, First Nations people, people of colour, people who speak English as a second language in the context of English being the main language that's spoken in Australia. And so I want to thank the team as well as the community at the centre for nurturing my inclusive design practice. You'll continue hearing me refer to the work that we did. I can't help it, I can't undo it. Uh, because I wouldn't be here without them. And a little disclaimer, um, I'm not representing any organisation today, also working in government, caretaker period, um, and so all opinions are my own. <laughs> so today, um, I'll be talking you through the nuances of inclusive design research. So what's, like, what's the difference between design research and inclusive design research? I'll be talking to you about the concept of edge. I will then be moving us into what it looks like in practice, followed by how we can convince people to care, because we care, <laughs> and then next steps that you can take from here. Now, I thought it was really important to just clarify the nuances between design research and inclusive design research so that we're on the same page as I continue. Up on the screen, I've got a definition of inclusive design. And inclusive design is design that considers the full range of human difference, um, of human diversity with respect to ability, age, gender, language, sexual orientation and all other forms of human difference that make us, us as human beings. And so inclusive design research is research that considers the full range of human diversity. Now, when we're comparing mainstream design research and inclusive design research, there's a lot more in common than um, people often expect. So we use the same research methods, so ethnography, which we've talked about today, diary studies, focus groups, interviews, contextual inquiry, surveys, usability testing, and the process that you go through as a researcher, which we've also heard about today from planning, recruiting, conducting, gathering data and analyses, synth, and then reporting, that's also the same. And the last similarity that I wanted to touch on is that our research approach at the end of the day is always going to be context dependent, which means that whatever method that you choose to use and who you decide to include in your participant selection criteria, that will depend on your research goals, the questions that you want answered, as well as the hypotheses that you want to test. It's the same thing. The main nuance that I wanted to focus on is that inclusive design research focuses on investigating exclusion, or otherwise we can call it mismatch, with the goal of breaking the cycles of exclusion. The reason for that is because design is much more likely to be the source of exclusion than inclusion. We know, what good, we know that good design is invisible, but bad design is painfully obvious. And most of our world has been created by people in power for people just like them, 
uh, and for themselves. And what this means is that we're living in a world that's full of mismatches, where things work for some people, but don't serve everyone. And part of this is because the people who made those decisions, um, A, aren't representative of the diversity within our population, although this is slowly improving, or B, they hadn't considered the full spectrum of human diversity, whether that was intentional or unintentional. An example of this um, that was a, is very sticky to me from the book Technically Wrong um, is about a woman who signed up for a gym membership. And to get into the gym, you have your like little swipey thing to unlock access so you can get in. So this woman, she could get into the gym, but you also need a swipey access to get into the bathrooms, right? She could never go into the toilet. And they were so, like, the team was so confused at the front desk because they're like, well, you can get into the gym, so everyone who can get into the gym can get into our toilets. So why can't you get into the toilet or the change rooms? The cause of that was actually because this woman is a professor. So their title is doctor. The people who built the system assumed that a title of doctor meant a male. And so this woman had never tried, but if she did, she would have been able to get into the male toilet. And so that's an example of how design can be a source of exclusion and mismatch and it's all around us. So when we're talking about exclusion and mismatch, we're talking about focusing on this question um, and the experiences of the answer to this question, which is who experiences the most difficulty with the product, service, space, policy, process, whatever it is that you're researching. And to answer that question, we can consider all the different forms of human difference, but another question to help you answer that question, we love questions, <laughs> is whose perspectives have never been included as part of past research or design, and why is that? Now, in our field of research, inclusion and exclusion criteria sort of make like a fundamental part of it, like not everyone will be relevant. Um, and so if you have a good reason why some cohorts aren't relevant to your target audience, and because of that you've not consulted them, then that's okay. But the key here is to be upfront and transparent about who you have included, who you have not, and why. The people that we Okay, I'm also struggling with this double clicky thing. The people that we, that experience the most difficulty um, with the thing that you're researching is what at the center we describe as edge user. And so I'm gonna explain the concept of edge using this like three circle diagram. So in the center are the people where the like who the design works for and that's usually whoever created the design um, the designer themselves or the decision maker as well as people similar to them then in the middle ring 
which uh, a tech technical term, mediocre middle, is where people who can use the design but with some difficulty sit. And then on the edge, the outer circle, that's the people who can't use the design because of mismatch. They might be completely excluded. And so from the centre to the outer edge, it's like a scale of the experience of difficulty with the thing that you're looking at. Let's look at an example of edge using um, an example from the physical world. So we're looking at a steep, long flight of stairs in the great outdoors. Can you imagine this um, on the day after leg day, walking down these stairs? So we're going to start from the middle and ask ourselves, well, who do these stairs work for? People who can walk up and down without pain or discomfort, uh, people with good stamina and strength, people who aren't afraid of heights. Like, okay, these stairs are cool. Now, who might find it difficult to use these stairs? Older people with weaker joints and less agility going up and down. Um, anyone who's using a cane, a walking frame or crutches. Uh, parents with prams and little kids that may need carrying halfway up or down the stairs, as well as people who are pregnant. And anyone who's holding heavy items, like if you had just taken a bike ride around and now you've got to carry them up or down this flight of stairs. Moving to the edge, who's excluded by these stairs? Anyone who's using a wheelchair. Anyone who has trouble with balance, whether it's because um, they have an inner ear or a muscular condition, anyone who has a heart or lung condition, anyone with a very, very severe fear of heights. So I'm going to take you through another example of Edge using one in more of like the digital world. And I've done a little bit of an inception-y thing. So the scenario that we're looking at is participating in an online focus group. And so who are the people who may experience the most difficulty in this scenario? We can think from, again, the different aspects that make human beings different and unique. So anyone who doesn't have um, internet at home or wherever it is that you'd like them to join from or a device that can connect to the internet. Anyone who's never used an online conferencing tool before. If you're using English as the main language, anyone who's not confident speaking English or reading the information that you've provided in English may not find it very comfortable to be a part of your session. Um, people that can't stay in, uh, in one position for long periods of time. Anyone who, if you're only providing visual information, anyone who can't see the screen. If you're only speaking, then anyone who may have trouble hearing the facilitator. Um, anyone who might have trouble understanding or processing new information, and so on. And so hopefully those two examples um, help you understand that 
the nuance about inclusive design research, it's not about looking at average versus the extremes of a bell curve by putting the population um, on a bell curve by an average depending on demographic. So it's not about normal and abnormal um, because we all have unique and changing lived experiences, identities and contexts. Inclusive design research is about understanding the experiences of, experiences of people with lived experience of mismatch, exclusion and difficulty with interaction in the context of whatever it is that you're researching. And so you'll find that edge often coincides with underrepresented groups. And that's because, like I mentioned, most of the world has been designed without considering their needs. And so these communities are more likely to experience mismatch. Moving into what it looks like in practice. And before we dig into it, um, unfortunately, there's no one size fits all formula. Uh, a common theme through today's sessions um, because what's inclusive is always context and audience dependent and there are diversity of context audiences and needs. Um, good practice will continue to change as we evolve as humans and as society progresses and so just note that inclusion is about intentional and ongoing work. It takes effort um, it will never be perfect and we're likely to get it wrong sometimes. And so like um, previous speakers, it's about that unlearning, relearning um, and learning new things. This is one of my favourite quotes about inclusive design. Um, inclusive design doesn't mean you're designing one thing for all people. You're designing a diversity of ways to participate so that everyone has a sense of belonging. And that's what we want to do. As researchers, as designers, we want to design a diversity of ways for people to be able to participate in our research and design activities. And so inclusive practices look like us creating research processes and environments that are welcoming and safe for everyone, regardless of human difference. Um, and just note that this not only benefits our participants, but it also benefits us as researchers in all types of research, because the more welcome and safe a person feels, the more expressive and unfiltered they become and the more expressive and unfiltered your participant is, the richer the data you'll get from them. And so we'll look at four aspects um, in this box of inclusive practices, the tip of the iceberg, but that's all we have time for, I think. So the first is around respecting human differences. Um, using kind and respectful language. Um, a lot of clients that I worked with uh, were a bit nervous about interacting with communities that they're unfamiliar with, uh, particularly the disability community. Um, and it's all with good intentions of not wanting to offend anyone or step on anyone's toes or do the wrong thing. Um, 
there's a lot of resources available, one of which is the Disability Reporting Handbook um, that's available on the Media Diversity Australia website um, and sponsored by HireUp that has a lot of language do's and don'ts. Um, so like microaggressions that you may hear, um, how harmful they can be and the more correct way of describing people. At the end of the day, it's just really asking how people prefer to be described. So we use people with disability, but some people prefer to describe themselves as a proud disabled person. I don't have it on screen here, but the second point was actually check your own biases, which uh, some of us have already covered today. Um, but very sticky finding from a particular project that I did is how harmful a statement like this survey is quick and easy and it will only take less than 10 minutes. Well, who is the survey going to only take less than 10 minutes for? It can create a lot of shame when someone's trying to get through that survey and it's not quick and easy and they spent 45 minutes and they can't get past question two. For whatever reason, it may be that the online form um, is not digitally accessible and so the screen reader's not working with it. It may be because they're new to online forms and they just don't really know how to navigate through it or go back or update things. And so a better way of handling that situation is providing uh, a statement like, this survey has five questions and then showing people how far they've progressed within those five questions so that it's quick and easy for them if they think two minutes is quick and easy, some people think 10 minutes is quick and easy, some people think getting it done in 15 minutes um, is an achievement and so we're not building in any shame. The second one is about acknowledging different needs. Um, sometimes it can be incredibly difficult to accommodate for everyone's needs. So one workshop that we were in, um, it was an in-person workshop, what a luxury, um, in post-COVID, we're not really in post-COVID, but what a luxury in our world today to be able to hold an in-person workshop. For that workshop, there were people who speak English as a second language where their main language um, was, I think Chinese from memory, both Cantonese and Mandarin. Um, and in the same room, there were people who were um, a bit older, wearing hearing aids because they're starting to lose their hearing. Um, for people who have experience with hearing aids, uh, or for people who don't have experience with hearing aids, the ex it can be tricky for people to get used to them when they first wear, wear it. And it may be because they've actually been losing their hearing for like quite some time and they've only gone to get it diagnosed and get an aid um, at the later stages. And so once they put the hearing aid in, it picks up a lot of background noises that have already disappeared from their lives. So any murmurs at the back of the room, like birds chirping, all of those come back and all of a sudden, any noise can be a distraction. So in that room, we had interpreters who were doing live interpretation for our non-English speakers as the facilitators were speaking. And it, it started to get very obvious that there were some people in the room who were getting very uncomfortable and annoyed that people were speaking on top of each other. Um, what Manisha, the CEO of the centre, 
did at that moment was set an expectation up front and just called it out. And what she said was, um, we're all in this space here together and you may notice that we have some interpreters in the room. The reason why these interpreters are still speaking as a facilitator speaking is so that the people who require interpretation can follow whatever it is that's going on. And I know that this extra noise can be distracting for some, but the people who are receiving the interpretation are also getting information with like a lag. And so everyone's going to be a bit uncomfortable today, but so that we can all participate in this session, let's be kind and be patient. If we need to take pauses and take breaks, let's do that. If you need um, someone to repeat what they've just said, just put your hand up and ask. But so that we can create an environment where it can sort of work for everyone, so that we're not leaving anyone behind, we're all just going to be a bit uncomfortable, but we're all doing our best. The last point on screen is building in flexibility. So um, I think it was also talked about today around allowing people to respond in, and participate in different ways. So some people might uh, like to express themselves verbally. Other people might like to write things down. They might want to draw. Um, in an online session, it can be scary to go off mute or know when you can interject when it's like a group session. So the hand up tool is quite neat or allowing them to type their thoughts in chat. Um, others are more reflective people. Um, I am, so I like to think after a session and then follow up with some extra thoughts. So just allowing people to communicate with you in whichever way works for them um, can make it a better experience for them. The next aspect is around reducing potential barriers. Um, so in whatever research that you're creating, hypothesizing what potential barriers people may experience when they're getting to your research location, when they're understanding the information that you've provided them, when they're using whatever equipment that they have to during the session, when they're communicating with you or with other people, so going across the end-to-end -end journey and identifying any possible barriers um, by considering the different forms of human difference. So let's say, for example, our physical um, ability is the place that you want people to get to. Is that within a reasonable travel distance? Or are they going to have to catch a train, then a bus, and then walk 15 minutes to be able to get there or pay for a very expensive Uber that you may not be expensing them? Um, we can think about timing. So we learned that 10 a.m. sessions, 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. sessions are quite challenging uh, for some people because of potentially the extra logistics um, as a person with disability or as a caregiver. And so our community said that 11 a.m. or 2 p.m. sessions were significantly better and easier to plan their life around. Um, if you think about the cognitive aspect, um, being able to send information beforehand to a participant about what to expect, an agenda, the types of questions can reduce the cognitive load of participating in your research. 
cut out the jargon as well. So if you're doing usability testing, what are we actually asking people to do? You're testing like a draft of something that we've put together. You're testing it. You're looking at a work in progress to give us feedback. Um, not everyone will know what usability testing is as just like not everyone really knows just like how my parents don't really know what I do. <laughs> um, and so there are some useful resources as well for um, identifying potential barriers. What I have on screen is a screen grab from IDN's Cards for Humanity. It's a free web tool, so if you just Google Cards for Humanity, IDN, it comes up with these like pairings. The first side of the pairing I think is a bit iffy, but the second side of the pairing I think is quite neat. And then when you flip the cards, then it gives you some considerations for whatever it is, whatever dimension or aspect that you're looking at on the card. And you can deal new ones, swap the pairs, um, but just like a starting point of thinking about needs that you yourself as an individual may be unfamiliar with. The Center for Inclusive Design also has um, cards called Mapping the Edge cards. They're also freely available on their website. I think the Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit is quite nice where you can um, look at disability as a mismatch across permanent, temporary and situational spectrum. I find it quite neat as a tool to use. Um, and the UK government also has some really good resources about potential accessibility barriers um, for when people are accessing public services. And as much as we try to remove potential barriers, every individual is unique, so really just ask. Um, so you might hypothesize that a person with low vision might need accessibility support, but in reality, they may have grown up as a digital native. They may be an expert screen reader user and they work in IT. So they may not even experience any of the potential barriers that you've identified. So um, if you make a general practice to include a statement like, please let us know if you have any accessibility or other requirements for the session, um, so that you can fully participate. That means that you're giving people an opportunity to tell you what support they need and it gives you an opportunity to provide that personalised support. Um, depending on whether people have had experience engaging with consultations or research and um, know what things can be provided, like for example the closed captioning that we have here today, um, it can be helpful to include uh, examples of the support that you can provide. So whether that's Auslan interpretation, translators, more time to respond, payment for a support person to attend with them, or reimbursement for travel expenses. And of course that all depends on your budget, and so whatever you include in that statement um, is up to your own context. The last aspect that I've got there is building trust and relationships. I think the worst experience that we can give to people is for them to feel like a research subject, not a human being. And so I'm not going to talk about the basics that we all know around data privacy and informed consent, um, but we'll touch on these. So the first one around culturally appropriate communication, that's going to look different again depending on your audience. Um, but some of the things uh, that you may want to start doing include sharing your pronouns 
or spending a chunk of time at the beginning of the session to get to know each other first as people before diving into the activities to build that relationship. Uh, using a more indirect and non-linear way of communicating if you're working with um, more collectivist mindset communities. The second one that I've got there is paying people at the beginning. So in a lot of our work, we give people incentives. Often that happens at the very end of a session or a week or two after. If we found that paying people at the very beginning, once they've shown up, it reduces the pressure to perform. It reduces anxiety of, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I going to get paid? Or will I have done something that has a consequence of me not being given the amount of money that I was promised for my time and for sharing my opinions? Um, of course, uh, our own research processes keep saying our research processes aren't perfect and there's still lots of room for improvement but wherever possible try to give incentives at the very beginning the third point I've got there is clear exits so making sure that people who are part of your sessions know how to leave so just like today we all know that if you're not feeling good if I've triggered anything in you that's the way to run out you can always come back but telling people that it's okay to leave, it's okay to take breaks, it's okay to skip questions, um, both in the physical world of showing people where the door is um, and how to get out, but also in the digital world of if you've joined this call, you can, turn off, you can turn off your camera and take a break. You can leave the call and come back. Just let us know and say, be right back. If you don't want to participate in this particular topic of discussion, just tell us, skip. So giving people that choice and control. I've also missed another point on there, which is close the loop. Um, and so involving and informing your participants about your research findings, your insights, as well as the outcomes. So what have they actually contributed to? What changes have you made? What changes couldn't you make? Just communicating that um, closes that feedback loop for participants so that they feel like they know what their contribution has done for you. And then on the topic of feedback, the last point there is asking for feedback to improve the experience for future participants. So it just shows that we don't just care about our research outcomes, we also care about um, you as a person and we want to make the experience better for the next you. How are we going for time? Going okay? Yeah, okay, awesome. So um, I'm guessing you're still here listening to me because you're convinced about doing more inclusive research, but a challenge that uh, people who are interested in inclusive design often face is convincing other people, their stakeholders, to invest in it. And often that comes down to a common misconception um, that inclusion only serves a minority of people and so it's not worth the effort. So my first gift for you is a stat, knowing that some of our stakeholders love numbers and we can win them over that way. Um, it's a stat from the Benefit of Designing for Everyone report, also freely available on the center's website. And it's that inclusively designed products and services can help you reach up to three to four times your intended audience. And when you do it from the start, 
it can save you the cost of retrofit because of exclusion. Everyday products like your smartphone touchscreen, like Siri and other voice assist technology, uh, curb cuts, so on the street where like there's the road and then there's like that mini ramp, as well as electric toothbrushes, those were all originally designed to solve specific mismatches and now ended up being used by more people than intended for. And the reason why um, inclusively designed products and services can reach more people than intended is because a mismatch for edge is very likely to be a pain point for everyone. Whether it just depends on like severity. So it may be an inconvenience, a frustration or an annoyance, but edge experienced that mismatch much more severely compared to those closer to the center. Um, and each one of us, we become much more susceptible to mismatch as we age and all of our abilities start to decline. So what we found as well was that you can get richer insights with fewer participants when you do edge user research. So as the team at the centre did more and more edge user research for clients, what we did was we mapped edge user research findings with our clients' past research findings and found that edge user research found all the same insights plus additional new ones that were missed. And so edge findings um, can also help you spotlight the areas that are the most severe, which should be solved first. And so you can maximize your research outcomes, adding that inclusion lens to your research practices. So where to from here? Um, like Steve described, research is really only the beginning of understanding and the beginning of solving. So there's so much more to this and I tried really hard not to make this just this brain dump of stuff to you. Um, so I wanted to leave you with some final thoughts about potential next steps that you can take away. And it was inspired by one of my mentees who asked me last week, what do you wish you knew when you first started in inclusive design research? And I was like, damn, good question. Now I have to sit here and think. Um, so I wish my past self knew that every act of inclusion matters. You don't need to have inclusive inclusion or even designer or researcher in your job title to practice inclusive design or inclusive design research. When I first discovered inclusive design, I was so excited, but also very disheartened because, you know, it's not normal or common practice everywhere. And so I strive to work for a place centered on inclusion. Now that I have, and I've worked with a lot of individuals, teams to build up their inclusive design practice, what I learned is that every action that moves us towards more inclusive practices causes a ripple effect. Whether that ripple effect is big or small, every step that you can take within your own sphere of influence makes a difference. And so if you don't have buy-in from your stakeholders, maybe you could sneak in like one or two edge users in your current research cohort without deviating from your own like selection criteria, but just, you know, proving, showcasing that, look, our edge findings have given us more insights 
Um, you can make incremental changes to your research processes and environments to make it easier for people to participate. You can notice mismatch and talk about it with anyone who will listen to you. You can reflect on your positionality and any gaps that you have um, in perspectives within your teams and the people that you work with so that we can decenter ourselves um, from design decisions. And any step that you take here is very important because like, um, like Brendan and Laura mentioned, as researchers, designers and technologists, we're in a position where we have the power to include or exclude people in like the decisions that we make and the things that we're putting out into the world. And so that means we have a responsibility to enable as many people as possible to play a part in designing our world. And together we we can shape more equitable futures where everyone can feel like they belong. Thank you. Thanks very much. So I'm going to go over here again. Okay, before you go into the questions, I yes. just wanted to add a little note that that QR code, that was meant to be <laughs> to a list of resources that I've mentioned, because I know I've dropped a lot of resources, but haven't actually given you links or given you images of what they are. Because this talk was a last minute scramble, that actually links to my LinkedIn and not the list of resources. <laughs> but I will get it done this week and I'll update the UX Australia crew with the new deck, which includes the list of resources. Post them to your LinkedIn. Thank you. Will do. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of questions, but I have to make a comment first. At the beginning, you said, um, I'm, I, I need to stick to the script because I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes and yeah. some of this stuff is just going to touch lightly on topics that are much, much bigger. Um, and there was a bullet point, not in this last segment, but in the one previous to that, which yeah. simply said, culturally appropriate communication. Oh, yes. And that's a whole world of depth in there. Like, I was sitting there as a, you know, English-speaking Anglo-Saxon male thinking, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, on that, on that, to continue Please. building off culturally appropriate communication, what we found is that if you're running a session with community, having a facilitator with lived experience or like is also a representative or a part of that community, mm. it helps you build that trust and build the relationship. And then it, it also means that we're democratizing our work so you can partner with someone co-facilitate um, with a representative so we've worked with say like children with disability Australia children and young people with disability Australia yeah yeah I, I just had to call it out that was yes. awesome um, okay uh, a couple of questions have come through um, the first of those which I, I, I think you've kind of covered um, in that last little section but it was how do you advocate for the use of inclusive design when sometimes it's seen as a luxury and their users might be seen as a secondary audience yeah and so like I was saying edge user research and inclusive design it actually helps you maximize your research outcomes so you need to you actually need to invest less upfront than if you didn't do it and then you had to fix the cost of not doing it. 
Um, I think on LinkedIn somewhere, there's this like really neat graph. I think it's also part of the benefit of Designing for Everyone report, but there's like a neat graph of how the exponential cost of retrofit, mm. say when you're doing it from planning, designing to implementing phase, and it just gets really, really expensive. And so I think that's a, com that's a nice conversation to use to convince stakeholders, well, you're actually getting bang for your buck by doing this and getting it right from the beginning. Very nice. Um, there's a second question, um, and I'm, I'm gonna leave off the person's name, and if they wanna own up to it, they can, but I'm, I'm conscious that it might be workplace sensitive. So, um, I had a project manager say to me yesterday, this, this app is for parents of school-aged children. We have some of those in our development team, so we're gonna get them to test it. Mm. How would you respond to convince them to be more inclusive? So if that's your question, you can, you, you're, you're welcome to claim it, but I don't want to throw you in the soup. So, go. <sighs> um, what's the question around how would you respond to that scenario? Okay, well, I'd first sigh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I... So... I think it's about, well, what's the purpose of you doing the testing? You're trying to make sure whether or not it will work and find, like, try to break it and make sense of the good parts about it and the bits that aren't working, right? If you're doing that testing with people within the circle of the design team, then that's essentially doing testing with your own team. So why bother? I mean, it's, it's like a nice starting point to stretch away from, like, the center and but the team will probably get better insights, newer findings, if they've reached out beyond their own circles. Um, there's a particular exercise that I don't think we can do today, but it's a team exercise that helps you look at um, the gaps in your perspective by looking at uh, the answer to your question, uh, the answer to a question, which is, um, who are the five people that you'd go to for advice about usability testing, as an example, or just for advice about work? And then we put those people down on the page, and then we dissect what makes these people human. So we dissect their age, their gender, their sexual orientation, uh, their educational background, their like specialty and expertise at work, um, and then you look at you look at it, and then you start to see some patterns. And as humans, we innately are attracted to people just like ourselves because we feel safe that way, right? But if we continue to do research and continue to consult only people like us then it means that whatever we're putting out into the world will not serve anyone other than other me's. And I think as a designer, like you were saying, Steve, it's the, the shifting role of the designer is as a facilitator. And so we want to be decentering ourselves and our own teams from the whole process. Bit of a long-winded, tangential answer to the question, but no, that was good. if the person who asked that question wants to have like more of a conversation about it, I'm happy to do so. Um, I had um, two quick thoughts. One is that, I mean, um, this idea that designers are first and foremost facilitators 
um, is, is something that comes up quite a lot. And um, that's, that's not what I'm suggesting. So facilitation is an important role and it's absolutely something that we are getting towards um, as, you know, like it's a, it's a critical part in what we do. Um, as Brendan and Laura made the point though, it's good for us to have an opinion about what good looks like and all that time we spent in university learning the techniques of design um, were for a point. If we were just going to do facilitation, we could have always got a certificate in facilitation techniques and, you know, skip design school entirely. So I just want to sort of clarify what I meant by that oh, because it's yes, there's 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 power in design and understanding the tools and methods of design and thinking in this audience in particular broadly about what we mean by that. Um, and facilitation is a component of it, but being inclusive about it is going to be a, a core skill. Yeah, to build on that, there's this like analogy that I've been um, t testing with the team that I work in now, and it's that design is a verb, just like cook. So anyone can learn how to cook or dance or sing, uh, but not everyone is a chef by profession or a singer or a dancer. And so design can be a mindset and a toolkit that can be shared and learned by anyone, but not everyone may be a designer by profession. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Michelle.